podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast with MyDieselClaim.com. Hello, I'm Paul Hayward and welcome to the official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. The show that takes you deeper than ever before into your football club. Pagnoli left footed over the wall and in off the crossbar. Surely that seals the win for the Albion. What a strike! In this episode, Sebastian. the voice of BBC Sussex Sport, Johnny Cantor, discusses why Sabutio is the best training ground for commentators, life on the road with Warren Aspinall, asking managers whether it's time for them to go, and his lifelong love of coloured pens. Johnny Cantor, this is Trading Places. You're the pro broadcaster and I'm the scribbler, but I'm in charge of the microphones. I don't know how that happened. But for the three people in Sussex who don't know you, tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Johnny Cantor. Uh, I'm a broadcast journalist for the BBC and have been for nearly 20 years. Um, I have worked elsewhere before, Channel 5, ITV, Express newspapers as well. Um, But I'm currently a broadcast journalist at BBC Radio Sussex, and I've covered the Albion pretty much since I joined. Um, I have been in the BBC for longer. I used to work in television um, in BBC South today, covering sport there. But now, with the growth of this football club, um, pretty much 99% of my time is spent covering Brighton and Hove Albion. Yeah, it's important to say that as a BBC man, you can't just sit there firing off opinions. I mean, that's Warren Aspinall's job, and he he very rarely disappoints. Uh, And so much of... So much of football journalism now is opinion. It's a soapbox of mine that people have to report as well. They have to tell you what happened. And that's very much your job, isn't it? To objectively tell people over the airwaves what's going on. Yeah, very much so. I mean, you could say that I'm the straight man, as it were, um, because my job is to say what's happening. You know, I am the eyes of people listening on the radio. My job is to paint a picture for them, to express that emotion because they're not there necessarily. They might be doing other things. That's the medium. Radio is always like that. You can take it with you. So that's my job. And then obviously, you know, Warren is there as an expert, uh, someone who can analyse, someone who can, you know, enhance the coverage as well from his point of view as an ex-player as well. But I think you're right. I think we also have to remember that, yes, football is about opinions, but it should be based on fact as well. So obviously there's a lot of planning, preparation, that I do when I do a commentary or whether I do an interview or whether I'm producing a show or a podcast because we want to get it right. And that does fall into the sort of BBC remit of, you know, trust, accuracy, uh, which are so important as well because we want the listeners to trust us because they want us, we want them to believe what we're saying. But also I think the overriding thing for me is sport is meant to be fun. Everyone should enjoy the whole process, the game, the pre-match, the post-match. It should be enjoyable. And that's that, that sort of joy is what I try to bring to the output, you know, and hopefully I do it in an enthusiastic and interesting way. But you can't always guarantee it, but um, that's what I try to do. So you have to do that as a, as a journalist rather than a fan, don't you? It, it's, it's very important that fans understand you're not employed by the club. You're employed by the BBC to go and, to go and report on a game. You have, to, you have to keep your independence, don't you? Yeah, very much so. And that means that you might have sometimes some very difficult conversations. Um, but that is, again, building up that trust. I mean, at this football club, I've had to ask managers whether they felt it was the time for them to step down because... Form was at a stage where... Always a, always a good one to ask. They, <laughs> it they, is. They always enjoy not, that one. I'm not sure Sammy Hoopier enjoyed it, but I, I did have to ask the question anyway. <laughs> yeah, we've all done that. And So give us an insight into how you call 
90 minutes of, of live football. What do you have to do to make a piece of commentary work? You know, what are the essential elements of that? Well, it isn't just 90 minutes. Obviously, there's a load of preparation that goes into it. Um, I'm not particularly heavy on statistics. I think they can help you. Um, they can enhance things, but they must reflect. And they do say that 90% of your research gets unused because it's not necessarily relevant. It's just having it there in case. So being prepared, having all that sort of set aside, just ready. Um, you know, every commentator loves a coloured pen, so you know we get to go there, get those out every every so often as well. But for me, it's about storytelling, and it's about just grasping what the story might be, particularly or potentially for that game. Is it going to be you know, a record running win? Is it going to be the the defeat that sends them down? Is it going to be you know the, all those kind of things and having that in your mind prepared. But also, you know, being ready. I mean, it's actually quite exhausting talking for 90 minutes, mm. as you're probably finding out, like doing podcasts. <laughs> it actually can be, you know, it's very exhilarating. It's quite taxing on your brain. You're constantly talking. There can be no gaps, all those kind of things that you put into it. And stuff um, is happening all the time, isn't it? It is, it is. Um, and that is why you do have to sometimes lean on your, your summariser. I mean, for instance, if you were on a commentator on Match of the Day, you don't actually have a summariser. So you are actually having to call the action on your own. Mm. It's very different for me because... I see Warren and obviously my former summarisers before, whether it be Johnny Byrne, you know, Norman Gall, all those great people that have been in the commentary position with me, to use their expertise, but allow me to pace myself. 90 minutes is quite a long time. I mean, people say, well, you know, the easy games are actually when, you know, it's a 4-3 it's win in the last minute. My job is relatively easy. The tough ones are when it's nil-nil. I mean, Talking about Lewis Dunk and his you know, call up for England again, recall I should say. You know, he made his debut away at MK Dons in a meaningless game that ended nil-nil. That's when you earn your coin because you have to find a way of making it engaging for the listener because you want them to keep listening and you want them to enjoy themselves. One of the things I like about your commentaries is that you don't spend the first 20 minutes reading out your homework. This is a, a real bugbear of mine. You get this at the very highest level in commentary now. Not, not everybody, but there are a number of people who will insist on sort of kind of machine gunning you with stats and some of those stats are not particularly relevant to the game in front of you and the, the tradition of, of commentating on what's in front of you seems to be under attack really by this obsession with homework stats, extraneous bits of information, stuff that was said in the press conference in the middle of the week where the player might go next. You resist that temptation, don't you? Yeah, I do. I make a, a conscious effort not to. The trouble we have nowadays, of course, there's more information available. Because you go back when I first started, I started in non-league football, um, you know, going to Southern League games. That, that's where it all started for me. Then we didn't have the information. Now there's so much available on the internet and people, I think they try and shoehorn it into their commentaries. I think it's trying to take people along the journey with them. And, and that, I don't think statistics necessarily help. And I think, you know, if you say, oh, this is the third time you scored on a Tuesday night against opposition from Lancashire, I mean, who cares? Yeah. Bottom line. Yeah. But they've done the work, so they feel they want to shoehorn it in. I think if it's relevant, if it tells the story, that's what it is. If it's, you know, the emergence of a player who came through non-league, who's suddenly scored his first Premier League goal, that's more relevant. It's not just that he's scored his first Premier League goal. Five years ago, he was playing in non-league. It's his journey, and you're telling that story. And that's how I think it, it helps. It is true. I think there is definitely push towards it because people say, you know, you should say this and you should have that and you should. Well, I might have it available to me. doesn't mean I have to use it, though. I bet you've got some coloured pens, though, haven't you? I have got some coloured pens. I do love it. Every commentator loves a coloured pen. 
Uh, the one, one thing I love, and if you, if you ever get the chance, that I don't know if everyone's seen, Ian Robertson's got it. Bill McLaren once showed us at the BBC his, his, his six, his, it was Five Nations then, rugby, and it was this big, huge, and there was so much detail in it. It was like a, it was like a painting, you know, and that's it. But it's how you visualise it, and every person is different. Some people do it electronically now, some people love a pen and paper. Um, I love pen and paper. I have it formatted, the team formations, maybe individual stats about players, but also team stats as well. But every single one is different. But you are outside. You have to think about the conditions. Mm. Now, if you've got pieces of paper flying around, they'll disappear in the wind and all that sort of stuff. But no, I absolutely love it. It looks a total mess at the end of the game, but I can read it. So that's the main thing anyway. As you said, the other part of the job is talking to people. And I always tell young journalists that you have to talk and listen to people to understand the game. You have to put yourself in there and, and, and open your ears and your senses to what's going on around you. That's not always easy, but um, who have been your favourite Albion stars or managers to deal with down the years? Um, favourite? I think in terms of managers, obviously Russell Slade was the first manager that I dealt with and he was great. Um, he kept you on your toes. It was always fun. It was always entertaining. Things were probably a little bit more relaxed back then um, and there was probably just me and a couple of other journalists doing the interviews. But I just love listening to other people. Um, they're hearing their stories. I think the temptation nowadays is to make it, as a journalist or a presenter or a pundit, is to make it about you. And it should be about them. My job is to tell their story, not mine. I'm not really relevant when it comes to that. Russell was was, was great value. Um, Gus Poyet was obviously uh, another one that we had a few interesting times with as well. In terms of players, what I love is everybody's different. I mean, if you take someone like Glenn Murray, who I've actually covered twice at the club, was very quiet to begin with, but he always used to give you a run for your money when the media he didn't like doing it, which is quite ironic now, considering he's in the media as well. But what I felt about Glenn was he always had something to say. It was just trying to elicit that out of him. And actually, when I think about back now, I think, of course, he was good because he always had an opinion. He always had something to say. He was relatively close with the media when he was a player but also used to get open players. I mean, Anthony Knocker, I'll never forget in this room when we sat down with him talking about various different things and he just suddenly basically opened up about his, what he called de depression. Obviously things were happening in his private life that we weren't a party to, but he felt he wanted to speak. And it's our job to allow him to say that in the way that he wanted to get it across. Um, and it was quite touching in a way that he's able to share something like that with you as a person and as a journalist. And, that's very much how I see it. And that's about building up trust, building up relationships. I think that's really important with players. It is more difficult nowadays, I would say, because obviously Brighton and Hove Albion isn't in the same place it was 15 years ago. But um, at the same time, those, you know, those two characters are very different, but both were great to deal with. You get your rollickings in this job down the years. Every now and again, I've had a, probably a handful in, in my 30 Is years. <laughs> yeah, I've managed to, <laughs> it's quite a low number, actually. But has anyone ever stormed out on you uh, at an Albion game? No, no, no one's ever stormed out on me. Um, I, I probably could say I've been manhandled, um, if that's probably the right way of uh, saying it. Gus had an obsession with data. He had an obsession with possession stats. He had an obsession with, it's not just about the result. And of course, he always used to refer to the BBC website, which you know clearly I do contribute to, but don't, I'm not responsible for the data that gets input into there. And it was actually done by a third company, but after every single game, 
he used to call me up on it and just said that it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong, sort it out, sort it out. Because I was the face of the BBC and I had a microphone in my hand that said BBC on it. Um, and at one stage it did get a little bit a little bit far. And I remember Charlie Oatway intervening and helping me out and uh, just saying, slow down, Johnny. It'll be okay, don't worry, which I'm sure he's done on quite a few occasions when he hasn't been in the in the in the thick of things himself. Um, but no, it was it was fine. It was fine. But uh, when you say manhandled, what did he do to you? <laughs> there's physical contact, I think, is probably uh, fair to say. But um, you know, in in a in a in a, uh, I, I look back on it now, and it was it was no issue really with it. But he clearly was very frustrated, and he was frustrated with everything. But he needed a channel, and that probably fell on me. Um, but but in general, I've managed to avoid. I mean, there's some. There's been some pretty decent Albion managers. Like I mean, you would just people like Chris Hewton, great to deal with, obviously as well. But but Gus was a little bit of a, you know, a hothead at times. Um, mm. So mm. could be quite tricky to handle. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. Check if you are eligible for significant compensation for free at mydieselclaim.com. Life on the road. Let's talk um, David Brent with his Ginsters pasty and Costa Coffee, you know, Peter Kay and car share. Do you, uh, do you go everywhere with Warren Aspinall? Pretty much. Um, uh, we, we don't always go. I mean, obviously, we have separate lives. We don't actually live together, um, even though people might think it. But um, it sometimes feels like that. He does say sometimes he sees more of me than he does of his wife. But, you know, we try to travel together, obviously, to minimise costs. It's, it's sometimes you're doing long journeys. You don't really want to be doing them on your own all the time. And also, they're sometimes the best chats that we ever had because we can build that relationship. Because my, my relationship with my summariser starts from zero and I have to build that up over time. And hopefully we both now respect each other. But you know, we've had um, we've had difficult times. I mean, in the days gone by, um, we used to do obviously the championship, which was heavily northern based. And obviously, you know, going to Burnley and Blackburn is is quite a long way from the south coast. And I remember we travelled all the way up to Blackburn Rovers, and we got there. I think it taken us nearly five hours to get there. And I was quite early because we have to get there early to to sort of before to set up our equipment. So I thought, well, I'll just walk along the side of the pitch. I'll go and set the equipment out while Warren has a reads the paper in the car or whatever. And I just looked across the pitch and I just saw the referee cross his arms and go like that. His oh, <laughs> game's been called off. So anyway, it was so literally. I rang Paul, the press officer, said, by the way, they've just called it off and they hadn't even got there yet. So. Five hours back down, the, of course it was rearranged for the Tuesday night because it was a blank Tuesday. So mm. we drove all the way back up to Blackburn on the Tuesday night. Had the game, I seem to remember it being about minus two at the time. Um, and then we drove back and of course we were laughing about it, whatever, but we drove back on the night in the evening and it was getting late. And literally we got to, I think, I think we were about three miles from home and we had a puncture on the side of the uh, dual carriageway and we were stuck. Oh my God, I think we were literally, literally, I think, I think at one point Warren had to walk away because we were just at the end of our, like, you know, it's just, uh, but that's what you get, that's what you get. And literally, I think we actually got home, the light was coming up and thinking, right, I'm going to take the kids to school in a minute, I haven't actually slept. But no, we've, we've been, you know, we've had boy racers try and sort of take us on down motorways mm. on their 50cc bikes. And we're just like, we're in a car, this is not going to happen. But they're literally trying to sort of, you know, uh, coming back from various... It seems to always happen in the northwest. I don't know whether that's because Warren's from there or not. I don't know. But, um, no, we've had some jolly japes, that's for sure. Him, we, we had to park so far away from one game. He actually, I'll say, borrowed a scooter. 
and actually scooted to the ground because he couldn't be bothered to walk because it was so far. So he said, Johnny, I'm not walking. I had all the equipment and I was carrying it down. Well, his knees aren't great. Are they? Well, they're not, they're not. And his ankle has uh, obviously ended his career with the Albion. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, but um, no, I haven't had to carry him just yet anyway. So you wake up sweating sometimes hearing the phrase replacement bus service, I bet, don't you? Travel is, it is quite a stressful experience in this country, uh, to be honest. It is, hard to get around the country. And also, if you decide to drive, you come back. I remember coming back, funnily enough, from Burnley, and actually we um, we, we got back. I think we, we decided to come down the M6, it was shut, so we thought, oh, let's just dive. Uh, oh, the M1's got roadworks, let's go down the M5, that was shut. And we ended up, got along to the M4, that was shut. And literally, I don't know, we were sort of sitting in a sort of like lay-by in Cheltenham at three in the morning thinking... Just despairing. What, what are we doing? What is this going? Why are we doing this, you know? Well, um, it's a good job we're in the Premier League now. Good well, it, 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 it does make it worthwhile. But again, that sort of tells the story as well for all those people, whether it be the fans as well, telling their story in terms of, you know, pre-seasons used to be away a, a at Scunthorpe. Um, yeah. Now they're very, very different. I mean, you've seen the transformation in this club, a trip to... Rochdale away is now a trip to Manchester City away. Does any part of you miss that, you know, rough and ready world of terrible press boxes and half-time sandwiches that were made three days ago? Well, I'll tell you for nothing, there's plenty of terrible press boxes in the uh, Premier League as well. I mean, you literally physically can't get your feet in at Everton. And the quicker they move or get relegated, the better. Um, but same actually... Same some, Man United, actually. Man United Ter- is terrible. terrible. You literally... Can, I mean, I'm not complaining because I get paid to do it, but yeah. uh, in terms of the relevance, but sometimes you actually get more space at some of the you know low, lower league grounds. I do a little bit. I actually miss Withdean a little bit because it used to be so much fun because, because of the nature of the place. You know, quite often it would get to the final whistle and then we'd have the phone in and we'd be able to sort of try and hook a player over or even Tony Bloom used to occasionally come. He'd say, not this week, you know, maybe next week, you know, but he used to come in onto the show sometimes as well. And there was a beauty in that as well. Um, and obviously things are very, very different now. So, yeah, I think to a certain extent, but we still, you know, even going, fair enough, going to Forest Green last season in the, in the League Cup, it just sort of reminded us of where we'd come from. Um, and, and where the fans have come from as well. So it's, it's um, yeah, a, li- a little bit, I miss a little bit of that. Um, but uh, yeah, some of the stadiums maybe weren't necessarily fit for purpose in League One. You mentioned with Dean there, I mean, I can remember listening to you in the car um, and the, the, the commentary had that sort of echoey parks game feel on the air, airwaves. Sometimes it sounded like the local swimming pool. It was very, you know, it was very small scale, wasn't it? Um, very homeless. And now I hear you describe, you know, De Bruyne passing to Haaland and Lewis Dunk making the tackle. Uh, it's, it's changed your life too, hasn't it, the, the, the rise of this football club? Yeah, it has. Um, and, and sometimes this, this, I'll be honest, was a dream for me when I was younger. I mean, people always say, what was the first game you ever covered? I, I quite often say England against Poland in 1970. And then some people say, some knowledgeable person said they didn't play them in 1970. I said, well, that's because I was playing Sabutio with my brother. And that's when I commented. And that is how truth, I've still got pictures of me lying on the, on the, on the floor flicking. And actually, my brother actually has a recording of me saying, and there goes the final whistle. And then I blow, I actually literally go, obviously, after I've just said it. And I think, you know, I don't know how old I was then, but very, very young. And that was, so that was where, you know, my, my enjoyment, I used to listen, you know, under the covers, listening to the likes of Peter Jones, you know. My dad actually built me a chrysalis radio that like was on a piece of wood and I used to have it under and I just had one of those little sort of flesh-coloured earpieces that I used to stick in, lean down like that so they thought I was asleep if they came into my room while I was listening to European nights as well. And that 
So for me, in a way, it is a bit of a dream come true to be able to now do what I do. Um, and especially things like European nights, to think that I might be able to do that this season is, is, is certainly fulfilling that dream as well. So when you commentated on that, that Sabutio game, did, did you know then that that's what you wanted to do? Or, or did you just think, that was fun? Yeah, I, I, I don't know whether I necessarily thought radio or TV, um, but I, that is what I wanted to do. I went to the sort of school's career thing and I, they said, oh, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I, I want to sort of, you know, either do sort of some sort of sport TV or radio. And they, and they just sort of shook their heads and just said, well, we've got a teacher who can come in and talk to you, maybe, or a policeman or, or whatever. And I just, you know, but then it's quite a long time ago now. But there wasn't any sort of natural pathway. I didn't know anybody in the media. Um, it was just, and actually, I, I didn't say I necessarily gave up on my dream, but I did find it very, very difficult. Um, and I had to sort of bide my time in terms of getting the opportunity. But then I just kept sticking, sticking at it. I was persistent, you know, and, and eventually it sort of happened for me. But I'm very grateful for actually, you know, working my way up. I mean, a lot of people get jettisoned in mm. at the top level. And I think actually you can probably tell at times because, funny enough, talking to, to Glenn Murray about certain players, he always said the great thing I had was I was able to play lots and lots of games and make lots and lots of mistakes. So when it came to it, I knew what I was doing. And that probably, to a certain degree, I think applies to the job that I do because I made a fair amount of mistakes over the years, but maybe they weren't noticed quite so much. Um, well, I've never heard any. But So what do you do when you make a mistake? You're talking about getting the wrong goal scorer, for example, or mm. missing something really important in a match. What, what do you do? Do you, do, you, do you let it go quickly? Do you beat yourself up about it afterwards? Or Always beat myself up about it, but I always apologise. So if I get something wrong, I have, to say, I have to say, um, I have to say, yeah, um, I think, you know, even if it's little things like the other day, I, was, I think I said one of the Albion players was, was, was 23 and he was 21 and I just kicking myself, you know, for those little things. I know it's only small, but I think Solly March, I think when he scored earlier this season, I think I thought it was an own goal because, of course, where you are, your, your viewing point is not very great. I mean, like, and sometimes you do get a sort of little monitor. We mm. never used to. And then you look back at it and you think, oh, but then, you know, say Liverpool, you're up in the gods, you're miles away and the actions. I remember a big goldmouth scramble and I just hadn't any idea. Of course, the art is actually telling the story of what's on it, even if you don't know. So my mantra really is, if you don't know, don't say it. Yeah. And that's the best way. Whereas if you say it, you have to sort of get yourself into reverse and, you, you know, it causes yourself problems. So have you had any real disasters you can tell us about? I mean, absolute shock as well. In terms of in terms of commentary, you ever got the score wrong, for example? I I haven't touched wood. I don't think I've got the score wrong so far. But again, I have it written down in front of me because that is the most important things. The building blocks are you know what's the score, what's the time, where's the ball, and if you can start with those three things, that's a pretty good starting point for any commentary. Usually, the trouble is. Warren is the most eagle-eyed person I've ever known, and he just never gets it wrong, and he will call me up on it, and that is always there, uh, you know. So he keeps me on my toes from that point of view as well. Yeah, Warren's very interesting to listen to because he's, he's, he's got a great eye, hasn't he? And he mm. will see things that a lot of other people can't see. I, I like listening to him because I think he, you, you can learn from him. He'll spot something in a game that's passed you by. And... There's this debate about, you know, if you, if you haven't played the game, you can't, you can't be an analyst yeah. properly. And, and some players get a bit snobby about it. And journalists get resentful because they think players think they shouldn't be there. Yeah. And they, what do they know? And um, do, does the co-commentator really need to be an ex-player? I think it gives it a different dimension. Mm. Um, I really do. I mean, you would say, and, and Warren is always very keen to point out that, you know, he hasn't played in this era of football. So, 
you know, that it's different. And, and maybe there is an argument to say that, you know, you need people from different eras as well. But as you say, he has that eye, that analysis, that spotting a change, very subtle change in a formation. I mean, I'm there to describe what's happening, to say who's in what position. He's there to say why mm. and, and why he's done that and, you know, why someone might be pu pushing further up the pitch. And again, for our, you know, I'm there to say what, it, you know, what the weather's like, what the stadium's like, what the atmosphere's like, you know, what colour the boots are, what hairstyle they've got, what, you know, and, you know, which side of the pitch they're pushing down. So they've got this mental picture of where the ball is and how it's working and where the pressure is building and all that. But then he's there to sort of say why and why is that happening? Are you dropping too deep? Or this person seems to be carrying an injury. And he spots that very, very quickly. And I think that is something that you just have naturally. And he has that naturally. And of course, he used to be a scout for the club. Mm. And I think that sort of ability to go and spot players, look at players, I think is is, is invaluable. And, that, and that's what he really brings to, to, to the coverage. If you had to enter one piece of commentary in a kind of national um, awards ceremony, what would it be? What's, what's the best piece of commentary you've ever done, or, the, or at least the most, most <clears throat> memorable? I mean, I think when Albion fans think of my coverage, they often think of you know, that game, the, the game against Carlisle, the Liam Bridcup volley, which obviously has been played a lot of times. I think my voice sounds quite different then to what it does now, which is probably true because it's probably quite a long time ago now. Gary Dicker onto his knee there, turns, looks up, a fall for Elliot Bennett on that far side, scoots back up in the air. Will it come down? Yes, it will. Bridger left footed, what a volley! It's the stuff of champions! It's the stuff of dreams! In the third minute of injury time, a left footed volley from Liam Bridger! And surely, surely won it for the Seagulls! Brighton for But also with commentaries, it's not just it's not just about moments. It is to a certain degree, but I think you earn your money when when things are really really tough. But I think if I had a moment in time, I used to say that maybe, but now I think we went to Q, Queens Park Rangers on a night game in the promotion season. And um, the great thing about Queens Park Rangers is you can actually stand up as a commentator for a radio commentator. That's actually very rare. For television, yes, you used to be on the gantry and all that sort of stuff. Whereas now. You know, we tend to be sat down, which is actually quite difficult because your diaphragm's slightly closed and you want to be open and, and all that kind of stuff as well. But there you could stand and you were right over the pitch. As any Albion fan will know, if you're behind the goal, you're right on top of the pitch. There aren't that many places like that now. And literally we were towering over it. And I think when Sebastian Pocagnoli scored that free kick, it's a piece... I think because I set it up nicely, because it was a free kick, it was a set piece, I had time to build up the moment. And of course, I don't know what's going to happen. And in commentary, you're always reaching for words and you don't know when they'll come. Huge, huge moment in Albion season. Seeing it away to halfway, the Albion have the victory. I'm not person who scripts it. I think a lot of people do. I can tell, and I don't think it sounds great. And I think sometimes it's even an insult to the listener to think, well, that's just pre-planned. He's written that down, and he's just read it, and it's just or she. It just that's not the way that I work anyway. I like hope that in the moment I will find the words to sum up a moment. And I think when when he scored that free kick. It was just absolute joy. And I think we just knew that was, I think we walked away from that ground just thinking, this is happening. 
And I think, you know, for me, and it being in front of all the Albion fans, the noise was incredible. It was, it, it was absolutely fantastic. Um, I mean, th there are great days, obviously. I loved the Solly March goal that got promoted because he was a local lad for, for us. Again, telling that story about someone local, I felt it meant more to us than maybe it did to other people. Some people probably don't even remember who scored the goal. When, I mean, we had to wait a little bit longer, didn't we, for the other game. So I think that would probably be the one that would I'd probably stick right up there. And also, uh, not just commentary of the goal, sometimes it's commentary of what happens afterwards as well, and describing that, that, that 10 minutes after you know, the, the promotion and seeing everyone on the pitch and describing that would, would certainly, certainly be a highlight. I was going to ask you about local media because this, this club's always been very loyal, I think, to local media. And it's easy not to be loyal to local media when you're thinking commercially and when you've got, you know, national broadcasters, national newspapers, you've got social media to accommodate. Social media is global in essence. Do you think that local media, local radio, local TV still has a, a role in this Premier League age? I do. I think it's the relationship that we have with the listeners. I got an email yesterday from a lady who asked me to give a shout out to, I won't name her now, uh, during the Manchester United game at the weekend because she's turning 90 and she used to go to the Goldson Ground with her uh, then husband, uh, who's sadly no longer with us. But she just turned 90, she listens to every single game on the radio and she feels she's a part of it. And for somebody who doesn't go to the games anymore, she is pretty much why we do it. The fact that she will choose to listen to us when she might have other options, I think, you know, shows not just people like that, but the people who come up to me in the street and want to be a part of it and feel attached to it, I think is important. The coverage is different. It has changed, but I think we still have a role to play. You're absolutely right. This football club has been, you know, exceptionally loyal to the people that have, you know, tirelessly worked to cover the club during the difficult times as well as the, the great times. But obviously the onus is on them to in this new age to, to, to move forward. And we, under, we understand that and that we might be maybe a little bit further down the pecking order. But when I go back to who was standing on that pitch on the sidelines at Rochdale in the freezing cold and there's three journalists there, you know, that was us and we were there and they haven't forgotten that. So that's really appreciated from, from our point of view. But also I do feel that we provide a slightly different service because we look at it through slightly different lens to the national media, you know, and I'm sort of, although we are objective and we aren't, you know, I work for the BBC, not for the football club, but at the same time, we want people to see it through the fans' eyes as well. And I think creating that and, and letting people see it from their point of view, because they will want different things from us than, than they may want from a national television broadcaster. So does that give you a, a profile locally? Do you get stopped in the street? Do, do you, do you know, you well No, you I'm recognize? radio, Paul, I'm fine. I'm not fine. Yeah, uh, you've, been, you've been on the screen <laughs> enough, I'd say. I know, I know. No, I, you know, I, I'm, I am, you know, I, I, often people come up to me, often people send me messages, you know, and I really appreciate that. I know, you know, doing little things like the, you know, the extra street thing and the, the fact that I've been up to obviously Seagulls London, I've done, you know, doing things with the, the official supporters club, you know, I really, really enjoy it. And just, you know, um, it's, it's nice to sort of like, even if they sort of, even at a game and people, quite often we chat to people as we're walking to and from games and we'll quite often have a, a, a long conversation of, about life and, and whatever. And that's the, that's, that's the beauty of it as well. And that's why these amazing fans go the length and breadth of the country to support their football club, which is incredible. 
but we're sort of there in a way for the ones that maybe can't, can't do that all of the time. But no, I'm you know I'm I'm very lucky. And generally, they don't they're pretty nice to me. I'm so I'm, I'm pretty pleased with that. Good, so they should be. Johnny, give us your top tips for aspiring commentators in the digital age. I think it's difficult. I think things have changed so dramatically over the last twenty years. There's lots of different things that I think you need to bear in mind. Um, I, I think practice. You know, uh, I think I mentioned. You know, I've done a lot of games at all different levels. And I think that's really, really good. Listen back to yourself as well. I think also the overwhelming advice I give to every student who asks me is be yourself. Don't try and be somebody else because people may not like Johnny Cantor. Some people might like Johnny Cantor, but there's no point in me trying to be somebody else because in the end, they realize you're not being yourself. And I think that's just inevitable. Um, you get mass exposure. So sometimes you can come under you know, quite a lot of criticism. So just be you know, happy with yourself, you know, but be yourself as well. Um, try and enjoy yourself because it's meant to be joyful. People go to work generally, you know, it's a bit of a slog. Life can be, you know, a bit of a downer. But when they turn on the radio, when they look on that YouTube clip, when they they want to be entertained, they want to have fun. And sport should be fun, and football commentary should be fun as well. It's not to say that it means it's life and death for a lot of these people. It's you know they're paying good money to support their club. They're desperate for them to win. You get that. You can be passionate, absolutely but also that fun comes through as well because it is a game of football. So I would, I would recommend that as well. Um, and I think just pace yourself to try and get there. It's a bit of a journey. Um, and I think as well, you know, we all make mistakes, but don't try and get there. Um, there's so many different outlets that you can do now. And you, you, I've done lots of different things over my career, you know, um, whether it be television, newspaper writing, um, a radio commentator, um, a podcaster, a lecturer, all these different things, and I think that variety is, is really good as well because I think you can pigeonhole yourself because if you can only do one thing, that's all you can do. And if it doesn't work out, that can be incredibly frustrating. So try different things as well because you might find, oh, I really want to be a commentator on Match of the Day. You might actually find that you might prefer radio. You actually might prefer that you want to might work for a football club or you might want to do like digital content. So be open to all different opportunities that might come your way. Um, and go for it as well. Um, it's a it's a tough business, you know that, Paul. It's, it's a, it certainly is a tough business. You have to work hard. You have to be persistent, and hopefully, you get there in the end. So, give us um, three things about Brighton that you love, either the town or the club, the county, the I, life. I think if I say about the club first, um, it's been such a major part of my career, um, and we talked about that journey, and I. I always used to joke that the first season I did was the Great Escape season, and they've only been going in one direction since I covered them. So um, we've both sort of been on that journey together, which has been really, really nice. So it, it means a lot to me personally. Um, I love the sea. Um, I think it's good for the soul. It's, 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 it's a great place to sometimes unwind. Football never stops, literally never stops, and the job never seems to stop, and that can be quite tiring. Um, we all have our moments, I think, as well. Um, but sometimes you just need to slightly just recharge and reassess and just refocus because you can quite easily, I think, get overwhelmed by it all nowadays um, with the constant coverage, the constant needs, you know, uh, the constant demands on you as a, as a journalist. Um, so I think that's that's one nice, and probably the other is probably a little bit more personal, and that's that's probably my wife because she's a Brighton girl, and uh, you know, I met her. I've got a lovely family. I'm very lucky to have her. I'm lucky to have my family. And thanks to Brighton, that's what I've got. Very good. 
Johnny Counter, thanks for joining us. I'm going to give you the microphones back now. You're the, <laughs> you're the broadcaster. I'm the typist. <laughs> it's always a pleasure, Paul. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this, the new official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. So, what do you make of the show? And who would you like to hear from next? Tell us at podcast at brightonandhovealbion.com. If you like it, please rate, review, and tell your friends. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast with mydieselclaim.com. It's the stuff of champions! This podcast is a voicework sport production for Brighton and Hove Albion. Sports Social Podcast Network.